Hey, welcome back. This is Dawn Tree, and you're listening to Atypical Parenting, which is the podcast for people who love someone with autism, mostly parents and caregivers, grandparents, and all of the other folks in their lives, whatever your connection may be. I am so happy to welcome Richard Capriola. He is a certified addictions counselor who wrote a phenomenal book called The Addicted Child, and it's a parent's guide to adolescent substance abuse. We're going to talk today not just about adolescent substance abuse, but about the implications as it relates to autism, because we know that the rates of substance abuse in the autistic population are very problematic. We know that the anxiety, that the social awkwardness and discomfort, like all of these things lead to an increased substance abuse profile in this population. We're also going to talk about why that is and the implications on how that affects the future outcomes of our autistic loved ones. So welcome so much, Richard. Don, it's a pleasure to be here today to talk about this important topic of adolescent substance abuse in general, and also how it affects many children, teenagers who are diagnosed with autism and their families. So it's a pleasure to be here. Thank you so much. Do you want to just tell us a little quick bit about yourself? And what led you to write this book? Well, I worked in education for a long time in the state of Illinois, about three decades. And then as I retired from that career, I moved into working in the area of mental health and substance abuse. Started out at a crisis center and then accepted a position at Menninger Clinic in Houston, Texas, where for over a decade I was working as an addictions counselor for both adolescents and adults. And when I was working with adolescents, there would be many times when I would sit across from a family and I would go through their child's history of using a substance, what substances they were using, how young they started and and how often they were using and give them a diagnosis of a substance use disorder. And the parents would look across at me sometimes and they would say, I had no idea this was going on. Or if they did suspect their child was using a substance, they would say, I sort of thought something was going on, but I didn't think it was this bad. And these are good parents. These are very good parents doing the best job they can. They missed the warning signs because nobody told them what to look for. So when I left Menninger Clinic and I retired from there, I wanted to write my book to not only tell parents and help them understand what the warning signs are that they should be aware of, but also to know some basic information about adolescent substance abuse, how drugs work in the teenage brain, what assessments should they get done if they think their child is using a substance, what are the treatment options that are available, how to recognize a evidence-based treatment program and what resources. And I tried to pack all of that into about 100 pages because parents are busy. They don't have time to read volumes of information. So I wanted to keep it short, but very informative. And then there's separate chapters, very brief chapters to help parents understand what drugs are out there. You know, Parents know about alcohol and marijuana, but they may not know about some of these other substances that kids have access to and are out there on the streets. So I really wanted to help parents to become more knowledgeable about this issue because knowledge is power. The more we understand about this, perhaps the less scary it will be. And parents will feel not only better informed, but better prepared to deal with this if they have to. 
Yeah, it's so true because I think it's ever changing, right? Like we all, like you said, know the basic stuff that's out there that was out there when we were young, but there's some new stuff out there. Do you want to tell us a little bit about kind of maybe some things that we aren't aware of that are easily accessible for our kids? Well, alcohol and marijuana still continue to be the top two substances that teens are attracted to. And that's been true for a long, long period of time. What I think is alarming now that for three years prior to the pandemic, what we had been seeing is a tremendous increase in what's called vaping, where kids will turn to vaping nicotine and marijuana. Um, And if parents aren't aware of vaping, it's basically taking a substance and turning it into a vapor and then they inhale it. Well, for three years prior to the pandemic, Uh, teenage vaping was just escalating at ridiculous rates. So that's something new in the adolescent population. When we look at hardcore drugs, you know, the more hardcore drugs like cocaine and and methamphetamine and some of these other very, very dangerous drugs, opiates, the percentages are really very low, generally less than 5%. So alcohol, marijuana, and vaping are among the major issues that today's teenagers are being attracted to. What I see in the autistic teenagers that I treat is that they are very drawn to marijuana. And personally, I think that's because of their pervasive anxiety and their need to just sort of relax. And marijuana kind of does that for them, but it also creates a huge problem because it decreases your motivation, right? You know, that's an interesting issue because when I was at Menninger Clinic, I would ask teenagers, help me understand why you're smoking so much marijuana. And they were smoking multiple times a day sometimes. And the number one answer that came back was it helps me with my anxiety. So for some of these kids, not all, but some of these kids that are smoking marijuana, they're doing it to medicate that underlying anxiety or or some other issue. Maybe it's depression. Maybe it's a result of some trauma that happened in their lives. But these kids are using a substance to medicate what often is an undiagnosed underlying mental health issue, anxiety, depression, whatever it may be. And that is the primary reason why a lot of these kids are turning to a substance to medicate that underlying issue. And unfortunately, in too many cases, that underlying mental health issue goes undiagnosed and untreated. Yeah, I think marijuana in particular has become a really slippery slope because now so many states are legalizing it and there's so much going around about how it's natural and it's better than drugs and it's et cetera, et cetera, right? Like pharmaceuticals, I mean. And unfortunately, that really doesn't hit the problem because the anxiety is being tamped down briefly while you're you know, under the influence of it. But then when it wears off, your anxiety is just as high or higher than it was before. And it becomes this vicious cycle of this up and down cycling all the time. And then you have the added problems of decreasing your motivation, which has been shown in study after study. And in autism, oftentimes the motivation piece is already low to start with. Yes. But what they don't understand is that marijuana also has a rebound effect. It will make the anxiety worse over time. But kids are no different than adults. If we have an uncomfortable thought or feeling or memory, we're not built to sit with it. We want to get rid of it. And unfortunately, many of these kids and adults have learned that the way that we get rid of these uncomfortable thoughts or feelings or memory is through a substance like marijuana. And 
what I noticed was that when the test results would come back, the psychological test results would come back on these kids that were smoking marijuana. Many of these kids were very bright. They had very high IQs, but the processing speed of their brain was curtailed and their motivation was very low and their short-term memory was impaired. Now, these are changes that are going on in the brain that as parents, we might not recognize. We uncovered it through psychological testing, but it's just an example of how a drug like marijuana, when it works in an adolescent developing brain, can produce some significant changes that could affect that child over a period of years, well beyond their school years. Yeah, I think the data now is showing that teenagers who use marijuana regularly are significantly more likely to have a chronic anxiety disorder in adulthood. And whether that's because they have it to start with, I don't know, but you know, it's worrisome for sure. What do you think it is about autistic kids in particular that draws them into that drug using crowd to start with? I think it's the same as what takes any child into the world of substances. You know, there's many different routes that a child can get into substances. Some of them explored out of curiosity. You know, they've heard about this substance like marijuana and they want to find out what it's like for them and they try it and they either have a good experience or a bad experience and that determines whether they continue. Some of them are subject to peer pressure. You know, the peers that they're hanging around with are using a substance, alcohol, marijuana, whatever it is, and they want to join in. And then for some kids, not all, but some kids, there is the medicating of the underlying issue whether it's anxiety, depression, whatever. It could be an emerging personality disorder. It could be any of the mental disorders. And they're using a substance to medicate that because they found out that it works and it works quickly. And once they find that out, they're more likely to continue with it. The autism population, I think it's really important that parents be aware of what the warning signs are for substance abuse. You know, parents of autistic children, they're pretty knowledgeable about autism. You know, they've learned the hard way about autism. They know it pretty well. They may not be familiar about the warning signs for substance abuse and and the correlation between autism and substance abuse, which is fairly high. So it's very important that parents learn what to look for, learn what the warning signs are for adolescent substance abuse. We know that a child who is diagnosed with autism is twice as likely to develop a substance use disorder. We also know that 7%, roughly 7% of those adolescents who are seeking substance abuse treatment or have a substance abuse diagnosis, they've also been diagnosed with autism. And one in five, roughly 20%, one in five teens who are receiving substance abuse treatment may have an undiagnosed autism disorder. Well, when you think about autism and you think about the social deficits, it's very hard to find a group of kids who will accept you and hang out with you for a variety of reasons. And when you have a drug culture a clique of kids who kind of are all in this place where they have low self-esteem, their social skills may not be so great. 
the entry requirements to get into that group are pretty low, yeah. right? Like all you have to do is be willing to hang out and smoke or drink or do whatever. And so I think that is also a huge reason why kids with autism get sucked into these crowds, because the requirements for entry into these peer groups are really low. They are. And once you're in the group, you're accepted, you know. And that feels great to a kid who's not, it feels great to anyone, but it feels particularly great to a kid who's never had any real friends. That's right. And I think as parents raising an autistic kid, when your child has friends, you don't even care. You're like, oh my God, that's phenomenal. They have friends, right? Because you've watched your child be so lonely and so desperate for connection for so yeah. long that I think parents overlook the signs or they see and they're like, oh, well, you know, it's not a big deal because they also are desperate to hold on to those friends for their kids. What are the kind of warning signs that you would say parents should be looking for? As a general rule, what I say to parents is pay attention to the changes that you see in your child. You know your child better than anyone. So pay attention to the changes that you see. Don't assume that the changes are just normal adolescent acting mm -hmm. out behaviors. They might be that, but they also might be a sign that there's something else going on underneath the surface that you need to be aware of. Some examples would be a child whose grades are starting to decline a child who becomes less verbal and is talking to you less than what they normally have in the past, a child who becomes very secretive about things. And then, of course, if you smell any strange odors, find any paraphernalia, those are obvious warning signs. So you know your child better than anyone. So pay attention to things that, as a parent, just seem out of the ordinary for the way your child typically behaves or typically talks or acts. Pay attention to any changes that you see that are starting to develop. How proactive should a parent be? Because I think, you know, as kids grow and mature, we want to give them more freedom. We want to allow them to kind of do a little normal teenage rigmarole, whatever it may be. But we also have to be really careful. So how upset or excited or, like I said, proactive should a parent become if they see any of those signs? They should become very proactive if they pick up on any of these signs because the risk is that it could get worse over time. This is not something that you want to ignore. This is not something that you want to run away from. This is something that if you suspect your child is using a substance that you want to act on because like anything else, you want to catch any type of disorder as early as possible so that you can get on top of it. As scary as it can be, you know, it's not something that you want to ignore or you want to minimize. You want to get the advice of professionals, if necessary, get an assessment done so that you can either rule in or rule out if it's an issue. And if it is an issue, get the professional advice that as a parent will sort of guide you as to what the next step should be, but don't ignore it. So what kind of professional would you go to for an assessment? As a parent, the first thing I would do is have a discussion with the school psychologist, school counselor, or school social worker. Explain to them your concerns. Explain to them what's been going on. And ask them if they could do some preliminary assessments to guide you along the way. They oftentimes can do some of the assessments that you might be needed and any referrals to other professionals in the community that maybe can do some more in-depth assessments for you. How do you feel about drug testing at home? They're not perfect. I think they more reassure the parent than they do anything else. They are, you know, tests that parents can use from time to time. 
if they have a child, for example, who has a history of substance abuse, you might want to use it in recovery to check on it, but they're not perfect. You can have a child who's smoking marijuana and still get a negative test because they haven't reached the cutoff level. Usually the cutoff level is what we call 50 nanograms. Mm -hmm. That's how much you have to have in your system. If your child's got 49 nanograms, the test is going to be negative. Mm -hmm. So it's not perfect. So you don't want to rely on it completely. You might be able to use it as a reinforcement of the behavior if they've come out of treatment. Yeah. I want to just step back for a second and talk about what you said about how it's really important for parents to intervene. And I think this is especially true for the autistic population. And hear me out on this, because I think in autism, I've seen it again and again, Kids get a lot of services in school. As they age out, they often find themselves in this place of limbo and their motivation might be low and they have a lot of difficulty getting integrated into society. And if you are adding any kind of substance abuse on top of that, your odds for having your child or loved one grow into a healthy, happy adult are going to plummet. So you really, really, really do need to pay attention to this topic and you need to, like Richard said, really take the warning signs seriously. And you know, the other good thing is that kids with autism, they really don't lie very well in general. And so I think you can start by having a great kind of open-hearted conversation with your child or your loved one. So thank you so much, Richard. Do you have any other thoughts? Um, no, I think the point you just raised is an excellent one. I, I think that you want to stay aware of this topic. You want to have discussions with your child about them. You want to be open and honest about how your child using a substance, if they are, how scary that is for you, and just be open and honest with your child and relate to them, you know, your feelings about this. I think too many parents have the opinion that this can't happen to them. This happens to other kids. And I can tell you that there is no child that's totally protected from being subject to exposure to drugs or to using drugs or alcohol. Every child is vulnerable. There's protective environments, but no child is totally protected. It doesn't matter what neighborhood you live in. It doesn't matter what your income level is. It doesn't matter what church you go to. It doesn't matter what school you send your child to. Every child is vulnerable to being captured by substances. I don't want parents to become paranoid about this. I want them to be educated about this, to know the warning signs, to feel confident that if they have to address this issue, they hope they don't, but if they do have to address this issue, they feel informed and better prepared to deal with it. Excellent. Thank you so much. Can you tell me how parents can get your book? Because I suspect that there's a lot of good stuff in there. I have not read it all to full disclosure, but I think it's definitely worth checking out. Well, thank you. Please recommend it to any parents that you know. It's only around 100 pages because I know parents are busy, so I wanted to keep it brief. Something they could read quickly and put on the bookshelf and keep as a resource or perhaps loan out to other parents. The book has a website. It's www.helptheaddictedchild.com. 
helptheaddictedchild.com. If you go to the website, you can read endorsements and reviews. You can read a sample chapter. There's a link that will take you to Amazon where the book is available as a Kindle for people who like to read on their Kindle. And it's also available as a paperback. So the easiest way is to simply go to www.helptheaddictedchild.com. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure chatting with you today. Oh, it's been my pleasure, Don. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk about this important topic with me. Thanks for hanging out with me today. I really appreciate you spending your valuable time here. I think it's kind of magical that we're all on this journey together, each one of us with our own unique circumstances, but we're all here together learning and growing and striving to be the best version of ourselves so that we can be better at supporting the people we love. Quick shout out to my extraordinary editor and co-producer, Sam Eisenbaum. I know that there are a lot of parents and caregivers out there who are looking for the kind of community that we are creating here. If you find value in this podcast, it would mean so much to me if you could rate and review it on your podcast platform so that more people like us can find it. And remember, I am a psychiatric nurse practitioner. However, I am not your or your child's psychiatric nurse practitioner, and nothing in this podcast is considered medical advice. I hope you guys have a fantastic week.